Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and a warm welcome to you as we settle in for what I hope will be a stimulating conversation tonight here at the University of Sydney's Charles Perkins Centre Auditorium. Uh, My name's Dan Gaffney, I'm your host tonight and before I say more, let's acknowledge and pay respect to the original people and traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on, which is the land of the Gadigal clan of the Aora Nation. Um, The University of Sydney is built on their ancestral lands. Tonight is the second of four Sydney Ideas Health Forums for 2017. Uh, and shortly we'll hear more about tonight's topic which is titled Pain, a Symptom or a Disease. Uh, Leading us in the conversation tonight, um, we have three University of Sydney pain experts, Professors Paul Clare, Fiona Blythe and Chris Peck, whom I'll introduce more fully in a moment. Um, If you follow the slides, you'll see that free Wi-Fi is available throughout tonight's event. Uh, And please use the, the login details Um, that you'll see on the screen. Uh, Just a couple of rules of engagement. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, Q&A and uh, Tony Jones and crowd management, so that's my job partly tonight, hopefully not too much of that. Um, But a couple of requests. Uh, Please ask questions only. Um, Please don't give speeches. Um, Otherwise I'll say what Tony says. I'll take that as a comment and wind you up. Um, And also, please avoid asking uh, for uh, personal medical or disease-related advice. Any questions on pain, any question on pain is welcome, Um, but we won't be diagnosing or prognosticating or curing anybody tonight. Uh, If you'd like to ask a question, and that's what tonight is really about, it's a conversation, um, just raise your hand and we have two mics, two roving mics in the room, and they will find you if you're persistent enough, or if you catch the eyes of our roving mics. So um, you'll see those wandering. Uh, also, if you want to contribute to tonight's event on Twitter, uh, you'll see that there's a hashtag, which is hashtag Sid, SidHealth. Uh, if you want to share your thoughts and observations there, you'll see the hashtag and the instructions about that come around. So just quickly for a snapshot of who's in the room, if you have a professional connection, association, interest uh, in the topic of pain. You might be a clinician, you might might be a researcher, you might be a a student, uh, a teacher, um, even a journalist perhaps. If you've got a professional interest, would you just raise your hand so we get a sense of that in the room? Thank you. That's well over. There's probably 60% of people in the room. And if you have a personal connection to pain, you may uh, experience pain in your life. uh, or you may be a subscriber to Sydney Ideas and that's why you're here because you're interested in being a lifelong learner or in any other way that's personal or relevant. Would you raise your hand? Thank you. Great. Um, so without further ado, Fiona Blythe. Oh, hang on, I'm going to introduce you all. Uh, so in, uh, from, uh, from Paul to Fiona, then to Chris. So Professor Paul Blair specialises in internal medicine and hospice and palliative medicine. 
Uh, he's Chair of Pain Medicine in the Northern Clinical School at the University of Sydney and is Director of the University's Michael J. Cousins Pain Management and Research Centre at Royal North Shore Hospital. Uh, before this, Paul was Chief of uh, the Pain and Palliative Care Service at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York. Um, I think from 08 to 16, is that right? 15, 16. Um, uh, and he also had an, an affiliated appointment uh, as Professor of Medicine at the Wheel Cornell Medical College. Uh, Paul's main research interests include uh, cancer pain, cancer survivor pain, and the comparative effectiveness of chronic pain therapies. Uh, next to Fiona Blythe. Uh, next is Fiona Blythe. Professor Fiona Blythe is a Professor of Public Health and Pain Medicine uh, at the University of Sydney. She's also Head of Concord Clinical School and Associate Dean at Sydney Medical School uh, here at the University of Sydney. Fiona is a Public Health Medicine Specialist and, and an Epidemiologist uh, with research interests in how chronic pain affects different groups in the community, particularly older people, and in developing approaches to prevent and control pain at a population level. Uh, she has been involved in pain education for many years for postgraduate students and health professionals. Fiona was on the Low Back Pain Expert Reference Group for the World Health Organization's Global Burden of Disease study that in 2010 identified low back pain as the leading single cause of disability around the world. She's part of an expert group within the International Association for the Study of Pain that helps provide pain education for young health professionals in Southeast Asia. Uh, Professor Chris Peck is Dean of the University of Sydney's Faculty of Dentistry. Uh, Chris is also President of the Australian and New Zealand Academy of Orofacial Pain and a Fellow of the International College of Dentists. Chris is an uh, oro pain, sorry, orofacial pain uh, specialist who does research on the biomechanical aspects of jaw function, uh, evidence-based diagnosis and management of orofacial pain and biopsychosocial contributors to pain perception and jaw dysfunction. He's a leading advocate for multidisciplinary pain management and is renowned internationally for his leadership and contributions to translational research in orofacial pain. So now, Fiona, would you give us a quick snapshot of how you see pain from your part of the world? Well, I guess with my background in public health, the questions that interest me are in the community, what are, what are the biggest causes of health burden? And I guess beyond that, so not, not just which groups have it, but what, how can we think about better prevention and control of this problem? And 20 years ago, I was looking around for um, a PhD topic and I, I was just becoming aware of this concept of chronic pain as a condition in its own right. And I was also aware that there was absolutely no information about this as a the size of the, in the community. So I decided that would be my, my area of, um, of study. And so I was involved in the first statewide survey that was ever done, which estimated how common chronic pain was in the community. And we found out that basically one in five adults uh, overall uh, have chronic or persistent pain. Uh, we can see that actually from about mid-teenage years, this burden starts to rise and actually keeps rising into old age so that the, the, the rates are highest in, in the older part of the population. They're generally speaking more common in women than in men. 
And this is a pattern we see really uh, very commonly uh, around the world. So this rise with age, um, predominance in women um, compared to men, but not, not a great difference. Um, so that was, you know, really surprising to me. But one of the things that was, was actually very helpful was that this survey was done as part of a, a general survey of health of adults in New South Wales. And what was really great was that um, it, it also asked about other conditions. And so when, when the findings came, came in, the health department actually looked at this and they said, well, we didn't know it was so common as a problem. But also, gee, it's, it's actually more common than other things that we, we focus on more. So it really, I think, was the start of, of a, a, an awareness that this was a significant burden in the community and we needed to understand more about um, you know, why it was patterned the way it was. But I think more importantly, how, what could we do to try and manage this burden and hopefully in the future find ways of um, preventing it? Now, obviously, on, on an evolutionary level, we don't want to, um, to certainly to prevent all pain because pain has a very um, vital uh, function for us as organisms. And we know that there are rare groups of people in the community who are born without the ability to feel pain. And actually, they um, you know, often suffer quite serious injuries early in life and, and often have a limited lifespan. But actually, that's a very interesting question to consider as a community. What is it reasonable to think that we can prevent should it be all persistent pain or should we accept that maybe we can have persistent pain which is not so troublesome and we should focus on pain that's not quite acute or people who are very distressed by ongoing pain? I think that's a really interesting question um, and we're, we're starting to, to look at this in a systematic way. Uh, Paul. Yeah, so... Um I think in terms of uh, starting to talk about how pain affects people, I think um, one important distinction to make is between, and relating to what Fiona was saying, between acute pain and chronic pain. And so acute pain, like if you burn, you put your hand on a hot plate or uh, you have appendicitis, acute pain plays this important role of uh, notifying the person that they have an injury of some kind that needs fixing, and um, but but things are different for people with chronic pain. Often, and that's generally defined as pain that's been there for more than three months, and that's because that's usually well beyond the time it takes an injury to heal up. Uh, most injuries, and so um, so people who have got that kind of chronic pain may not have an injury there but it, it raises this whole issue of the different dimensions of pain um, you know you might say the, the mind and the body and the, the social aspect of it but um, you've got you've got these pain signals that are coming into your brain you interpret that as an unpleasant sensation and then that usually becomes is interpreted as being distressing for most people and then they, you will respond to that in some way and generally that's to go and seek help. Some people might just internalise it and want to be stoic but how people express it may also be very um, outgoing as well and then people around them will respond to that response so it has a kind of a social dimension to it as well. So um, that's why I think we're wanting to move away from the idea of pain as just the symptom of some other disease like arthritis or diabetes or 
whatever, cancer, and, and look at it as an entity that has many consequences on a person and all of them need to be addressed to deal with, especially with chronic pain, all of those dimensions need to be addressed to get the best outcome. We will explore that a little bit later. As you mentioned, it's multifactorial, multi, multi-causal, and when, uh, if people go to a pain management clinic, if they have been or haven't been, um, the way that that's addressed in consultation where people show up, so we'll explore that a bit later. Chris, have you got some introductory remarks just to orient uh, the audience to uh, um, yeah. what you'd like to share? So I deal with um, pain in the mouth and in the face. Has anyone had a toothache? Has anyone not had a toothache? Pretty debilitating, isn't it? So it, it's interesting because um, upwards of 10% of the population have persistent pain in the oral and facial regions, and so it's um, not insignificant. And a very conservative study has suggested that it's about $1.1 trillion, the cost, and this was done in the UK and extrapolated across the world, and we know with the National Health Service in the UK that the costs are very conservative. So um, it's arguably much more than that. And that doesn't necessarily um, include a lot of the impact on um, the individual in their daily activities and those that are close to them. So that's that's a, an area that I'm certainly very interested in and something that um, we need to focus on. Pain in and around the mouth and um, face tends to be very hard to localise. So pain referral is common. And I tell you all that because as patients of dental practitioners, I hope you all do go and visit your dentist, um, patients need to, um, when you've got a, a toothache, in actual fact it may not be that tooth. All right. So remember that. We always ask the question, um, is the pain site the pain source? And I think that's, um, that's really, really important. Um, and it's a good question that you can ask your dentist um, next time. We've done some interesting studies about pain and its impact on jaw function. So we all know that we need to eat if we want to stay alive. Well, people with orofacial pain often have very impaired jaw function. What the interesting finding was, was that it wasn't the pain intensity, the severity of the pain that predicted the impairment. It was actually whether or not the patient was depressed or had catastrophic thoughts. All right? Catastrophic thoughts. You know, the, the doomsdayers, the um, thinking that everything is going to go wrong. So that's a really interesting concept and it, it follows on from what Paul was saying that, you know, there's biological or biomedical um, components to pain, but we've got to think about the psychological and social um, context as well. Um, and finally, I think um, I just want to say that this area represents about 5% of the body surface. Not much, but in fact the impact to the individual can be catastrophic, if I may use that term. It is um, and can be uh, enormous. We see enormous um, disability related to family, social work activities in these individuals. And we're doing some really interesting work to why is that? Is it because this is actually the command centre for the body? This is how we communicate when I'm talking to you. I'm tend to be looking at your face? Is it because that uh, we have all of the other special uh, senses here? We have life-saving reflexes so that we don't inhale or ingest something nasty. Um, there's many different um, potential reasons. Uh, so I might leave it there, Dan. Thanks, Chris. Um, so let's open the room to questions. If you have a question, um, we have a mic 
on either side of the room roving. Um, put your hand up, and if that doesn't happen immediately, here's a gentleman with a question. I was just wondering, is there any research or any evidence that talks about whether there's a cultural element to pain? Um, um, is it different in different countries, different populations? Um, um, are there things that, you know, similar to diets, the Mediterranean diet is often spoken about as being great. Um, but, but certain countries, for whatever reason, have characteristics that make pain better there. That, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think, you know, that there are different things that, that are, are tangled up in that. There's, you know, people's ethnic background, the cultures in which they live, um, and other things about their, their environment. And um, it, it, it's not true, you know, it's not yet apparent that there is a, say, a country or a, a culture on earth where, where pain is much less common. Um, and of course, it's always, in this, we, we always have to look at how questions are framed uh, because it's, you know, that, that can have quite an influence on, on the answers that you get. Um, but what's really striking is is despite differences in how people interpret um, or the social meaning of pain, uh, we still see the same sorts of relationships between pain and other things across across different cultures, uh, which, which is really interesting. And um, uh, for example, I've been involved with some work with colleagues in Malaysia, where they have three very distinct cultures: you know, Chinese, uh, Malay, and Indian. And while it's true that there are differences in the in the you know prevalence of pain in those three groups. They're not major and everything else about it is, is the same. Um, but having said that, I, you know, I do think we do have to think very carefully about the, the, the social meaning of pain and what's true in some cultures in particular, but even in Australia, is still a sort of a stigmatisation. I think a lot of people who have pain really feel it's something, um, you know, if, if you're at a party, you want to empty the room, tell them about your back pain. You know, that, that, I think that is still a, a real problem and it's something I'm really passionate about, that people should, you know, should feel able to, to raise this. Um, um, and I think stigma is something that does vary, you know, and, ju you know, and judgments about um, one's own pain and other people's pain is something where there is a lot of cultural variation. I, I just add, it's also relevant to the management of pain mm -hmm. as well, and uh, we, we uh, probably talk about it a bit later, but um, a, a lot of the approach to chronic pain is teaching people about strategies to manage their pain themselves, and we have an educational initiative going on at the moment, um, focusing on primarily the Arabic-speaking population and the Mandarin-speaking population, and it's not just a matter of translating things, but also to interface with different communities and understand those kind of context things and um, there hasn't been much kind of levity so far but I, I, I know of one specific pain syndrome that does seem to be cultural and in, um, in the French language there's a word called couvade which is um, the husband feeling labour pain when the wife's giving birth and I'm, I'm not aware of any other cultures um, have that experience, but that's a, like a specific anecdotal example, I think, of where uh, you can cultures where it might respond differently. I don't know if my mic's okay. Um, one of my, my colleagues at the School of Public Health has done some work looking at inclusion of people in, in clinical trials for, for new treatments uh, for 
for all sorts of things. And in, in pain trials were what one group of trials where people who came from non-English speaking backgrounds were, were systematically not included in those trials. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's not specific to pain, but because in um, clinical trials of pain, you rely on, on report. You know, that's our main, that's our main um, assessment tool, if you like. And, uh, and that was the reason why, because, you know, often if it's a publicly funded study, you don't have the resources to translate questionnaires and things. And, and then I think this thing about how do you translate something from a clinical trial into the broader population, then I think you have to be very careful about applying it to, to people from other cultures. Yeah. Question uh, here and here. While those are coming, um, just so, since we're touching into the social and cultural dimensions of pain, um, uh, Paul and Fiona perhaps, even Chris, um, uh, as I understand it, it wasn't always the case that it was socially acceptable to talk about pain and it wasn't always the case that it was uh, uh, culturally acceptable in medical settings too. In uh, historical times, it's more acceptable well, well, now? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's even that historical. Um, I mean, I, I certainly know from the cancer setting that um, 20 years ago a lot of effort was being done to overcome the so-called barriers to cancer pain management and they're, they're essentially in two categories. One is people being, you know, frightened of taking pain, like narcotic painkillers, opioids, but the other thing was about not wanting to complain and I think in that situation they didn't want to appear to be a bad patient or distract the oncologist from treating their cancer or those kind of things. So. Um, you know, I think uh, it's not even, you know, necessarily that historical, and it's probably uh, probably similar in other kind of disease settings as well. And um, it's very interesting. So in the clinic where um, that uh, Paul manages, and I'm privileged to work in, temporomandibular disorders, so jaw muscle, jaw joint problems, the um, the prevalence, um, the male to female ratio is about six to one. Sorry male to female, one to six. So it's, I see females all the time. And um, whilst there's certainly some really interesting research looking at things like estrogen receptors in the muscles and the joints and whatnot, um, I think a large part of it is treatment-seeking behaviour. So, you know, the, the, the man with the muscle problem tends to just try to ignore it, um, not worry about it. The woman tends to be a bit smarter and uh, seek treatment. Um, and consequently um, we see them and consequently also we see them earlier and they tend to get better than the, the males. Yeah, I Fascinating. Think, can, can I just add, I mean one other example would be like whiplash where there's a huge stigma about people kind of bunging it on basically. Mm. So mm. Um, yep. yeah, I think it's not that historical. So if you have pain, go early, go often. Yep, right? yep. it's like voting. <laughs> okay, thank you. My late father actually had actually a lot of suffering from the bowel cancer and he had some difficulty explaining how bad is that pain to the clinicians or the family around and friends. And he always used to ask actually how come I see this um, in the medicine that they haven't actually invented a measuring device to measure the pain 
Um, and this is my personal experience. When you end up in an emergency department, they usually ask, uh, how do you rate your pain from one to 10? And then obviously I'm including that cultural aspect as well. Some people may exaggerate, say I'm dying or it's eight or nine. So is there any research or something around this or is it something measurable, non-measurable that we don't have this kind of device? Thank you. Uh, I, I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very good question and it's a very, it's actually a very deep question and um, you'll get debates at pain conferences on this exact topic. And it, so partly comes back to what the definition of pain is and while I can't quote it verbatim, the International Association for the Study of Pain essentially talks about pain as an experience and it's, you know, this whole issue of all these dimensions. And so certainly uh, these days with modern technology, including the kind of work being done at this university, it's, it's easy to measure correlates within the nervous system of, a, of the pain experience. But, you know, ultimately it's what the person reports that they're feeling is what pain is. Um, there, there's, you know... Activity in the pain pathways, if you want to call them the somatosensory nervous system, as we call it, that can be measured. But ultimately, you're talking about a subjective experience for people. So, you know, one of the arguments is it'll never actually be measurable because it's purely subjective. Um, ask about pain management programs. Um, the work of John Kabat-Zinn has been around for quite a while now. What proportion of strategies um, rely on so-called alternative approaches rather than just drug therapy now? Could you say a little bit about the current approaches to chronic uh, pain? I'm talking about chronic pain. Yeah. yeah um, I mean... Uh, Drug therapy is really only one component of it. Um, I don't know if you can put a percentage on it, but there's essentially, I, I would say, three main kind of modalities. So there'll be, you know, like there could be surgery or injections, nerve blocks, that kind of thing, these spinal cord stimulators being inserted. Uh, so they'd be physical kind of treatments. Then there'd be um, drugs. And then there'll be all the other kind of strategies. And... You know, there are many things out there and, um, and I'm looking at it here at Mike Nicholas who's the psychologist who runs our self-management program and, and professor at the university. But um, I think the way, the way we kind of distinguish them are ones that we call active and passive and that uh, we think it's more important that people, you know, self-manage their pain and do, do active things like physiotherapy, stretching, that kind of thing, rather than lying there and having a massage or you know, like being hypnotised and going off to sleep and that kind of thing. But, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's a really a fundamental part of it, especially once um, treatable causes have been ruled out, like cancer or whatever, or, or a herniated disc that's pressing on a nerve and making a leg go weak. Once, once it's chronic pain that doesn't have a specific you know, lesion to treat, then you're relying very much on those things. And with all the problems with drugs, especially opioids these days, I think 
you know, those things are really coming more and more to the forefront. Can I ask as a supplementary to that, what typically happens to someone when they come to the Pain Management Research Centre at Rural North Shore when they come in the front door? Uh, yeah, well, um, so they'll, they'll be assessed by a member of our team, like Chris, myself, or, you know, we have people from different specialties, um, many anaesthetists, um, uh, myself more in the, in the cancer arena, Chris in the, the orofacial and dental arena, we have a rheumatologist, we have psychiatrists, etc., and then we have our physical, physiotherapists and our psychologists. So we want to do that comprehensive multidisciplinary assessment and we complement it with questionnaires like, um, the gentleman was asking to try and at least put some nuts, some numbers on the person's experience so that we can compare it to the population in general and document that they're improving. And then, um, you know, we, we, in a coordinated interdisciplinary way, come up with a, a combined treatment plan. Chris, yeah. I, I just want to go back to the, and, and um, amplify some things that Paul said about um, management. And I think, um, it's important. We, li we live in a very medicalised society, so you know you tend to have something wrong with you. You go and see your general medical practitioner, you see your dentist or other health practitioner, um, and you walk out with a script, a sample, that's the end of it. Um, pain is completely different, and so once, as Paul said, you've ruled out any pathology that could be causing um, persistent pain, um, the thing that I find works... Um, incredibly well and it's it's um, it's people like Michael Nicholas sort of you know world-renowned pain psychologist is um, is education is paramount um, is challenging those thoughts and beliefs of the individual and I can tell you that's the hardest thing and I have a list of patients who um, I have failed all right we have failed with to try to change that because as soon as they walk outside the door, they're back into that realm of we can fix these things instantaneously. Um, we'll come to you. I want to come to you in a moment, Mark, and talk about the psychological dimensions of pain. Um, there are plenty of seats down the front here, so if you're standing uh, because you want to, that's fine, but if you would like a seat, there are, there are plenty of seats near and at the front, so please don't be shy. Uh, question at the back, Dion. Could you also speak to what the how big a factor um, um, delayed or under treatment of pain or both is in the development of chronic pain? Yeah, um, yeah, certainly. I think um, you know, I, I think a really big topic in pain research currently is you know uh, trying to predict and prevent acute pain turning into chronic pain and uh, the, the, the kind of holy grail is treatments that will prevent that occurring and applying them as early as possible so like with, like with any medical condition the sooner you treat it the better and it's definitely the case with pain and um, there's a kind of technical word called central sensitization, which it, it seems to be that um, the reason that some people end up developing chronic pain after acute pain is that this process called central sensitisation occurs and the functioning of their, their pain system becomes deranged perhaps from you know, the acute pain not being treated and it, 
And the, uh, I, I think a, a, an important concept is that um, the nerves that carry the pain signals aren't hardwired like the electricity. It's a biological system and, you know, the word is plasticity, meaning that although the structure, like, doesn't change, the, the functionality of it does. And uh, I guess being plastic also means it can go back as well. But um, but it seems that, yeah, that, that's really the big problem. And so the sooner that you could... While there are these other issues, like Chris was saying, about the person's psychological state might contribute to it, but I think early intervention to stop the pain and and also try to prevent these um, consequences occurring is the key to it, and people are searching for that now. I think also, too, just looking at the broader picture, you know, if one in five people um, develop chronic pain, we can't have them all going to, to pain clinics. It's not... It's not feasible but also not, not appropriate. So there's been a lot of work saying, well, how can we identify these groups that are at higher risk, um, identify them early, fast track them into more comprehensive assessments and you know, early access to treatments and avoid this, you know, this, what, this sort of sorry tale we see a lot of people moving from practitioner to practitioner um, each time almost being seen as a, you know, a new phase of an acute problem when actually it's a subacute heading to a chronic problem. And there's been some very promising work in this area, certainly for musculoskeletal pain. Um, so we know things like multi-site pain, um, a history of bothersome pain in the past and, and a certain level of distress are all flags that this person probably needs um, an expedited, um, uh, more thorough assessment and perhaps um, a more expert assessment. Um, but the, the other, the other sort of flip side of that is that if you don't have those features, then chances are you will have a good um, resolution or with, with a really fairly light touch uh, community-based intervention, you, you can uh, learn to, to manage um, and moderate that ep episode uh, well. And, and it's quite, you know, I see this a lot in population studies and, and, it, and part of my work has been talking to people who are interested in, you know, in, in you know, one type of pain or to say, well, you know, w w what about, have they had other significant pain experiences? And that, um, off, you know, often turns out then to be really quite important as well as the primary site they're complaining about and whether or not the problem um, goes on and, and becomes um, chronic and more difficult. And um, just to back up what Fiona was saying, there was a, um, an interesting study with uh, individuals with jaw muscle pain. And um, so it's a take-home message. Um, if you have jaw muscle pain and if the average of your current pain, worse pain, and the mean pain, so take those three um, out of a scale between 0 and 10. If, it, if the average of that is over 5, go and get it treated immediately because they are the predictors for someone to, gen uh, to develop a chronic jaw muscle pain complaint. And I'd add to it as well that, um, you know, healthcare in general is pretty good in Australia and if, if a person's got a pain problem and they've seen, been to see a couple of doctors and a couple of specialists and they've been told there's nothing serious, probably that's the time to start thinking about focusing on the pain and not look for another orthopaedic surgeon or whatever because it's unlikely that a third or fourth opinion is going to discover something that that wasn't already discovered and people can spend too many 
years, you know, pursuing a biomedical treatment for what's ultimately uh, not a biomedical problem, and, um, and and it just exacerbates the whole thing. Thank you. Question up here, microphone. Yeah. Thank you. In what way can trauma to the neural system impact upon the perception of pain, whether it's inability to perceive pain or simply giving false positives? Things like that. Thank the you. which system? The nervous system. Nervous system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, kind of. That kind of follows on from what I was saying before. That. Um, so. You know, the, we have this system that takes the pain messages up to the brain and um, that, that normally functions in a certain way. And so certain kind of uh, injuries, will, especially like rheumatoid arthritis, for example, or where there's a lot of inflammation, will, will increase the sensation coming from where the injury is then um, other changes then occur in a spinal cord and a brain which might not be directly inflammation or that may have some kind of role to kind of wind it up. And then, um, so that's even with the system still kind of structurally normal but it's kind of become sensitised. But then, you know, other people have... And it's a relatively small percent of people with chronic pain but they'll actually have the problem being damaged to the... like physical damage to the nerves could have been an amputation or, you know, they had chemotherapy or, or they've had a spinal cord injury. So it'll be abnormal firing or, or, or abnormal nerves firing off. So, it, you know, it definitely both in terms of aggravating normal pain as well as causing pain in its own right. So it's a very, very important issue. Question. Sorry. Yes. Just um, an interesting um, orofacial pain is where someone's actually had trauma to the jaw and the nerves been the main nerve, for example, to the lower jaw that's been severed. The whole lip area is numb, but in addition, there's a searing pain. And so I think it goes to what Paul's saying there that in actual fact, um, whilst you experience the pain there, of course it's all happening in the control centre up in the somatosensory um, cortex and it's actually along that, that pathway that's actually um, causing the pain uh, because there's that feeling of numbness or no, no feeling as well. Do you think that drug-seeking behaviour impedes the efficient management of pain? And secondly, with the Im imminent, theoretically, imminent movement of codeine to a prescription-only medication, do you think this will, first of all, be beneficial to sufferers of pain and also to society in general? Um. What was the second part of the question there? A, a, a change in training to what? I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch what you said. With the movement of coding to a prescription-only medication. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, so instead of being over-the-counter, yeah. Oh, coding. Coding, sorry, yeah. I think coding. It's coding, yeah, coding, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I think... Uh, Education of the health workforce about pain is a very important issue, and um, I think that the first part was about education, was it? Did, did you say or 
Can you repeat the first yeah, part? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sorry, I'll split it up. Um, yeah. My first question was... <laughs> do you think drug-seeking behaviour impedes the uh, efficient management of pain? Um, look, I, I think it, it, is, it is a problem um, in the sense that any good or, you know, effective pain management has got to be based on a very comprehensive assessment of what seems to be the underlying mechanisms driving pain, but also the domains in which it's affecting people. And, you know, thinking that if you've got a persistent problem which is causing an impact on your daily life is going to be all solved by medication is, is it, it's, I think, a... A stretch, shall we say. And I think to the extent that it, it stops people maybe considering other things like what are my goals here? You know, is it just to have lower pain intensity or do I want to be able to play with my grandchildren? Um, you know, am I fearful of my pain? Um, am I avoiding doing things because I'm worried about it? Um, you know, what are you going to do? Take a different type of medication for all that and have all those problems, I, I think. Uh, and we know that particular classes of medications like opioids, um, if we look at them, we know that they're uh, A, not terribly effective as analgesics, B, not meant for long-term use, and C, have a significant side effect profile and in public health terms are, are problematic. But, of course, um, putting... Uh, removing something which people may nevertheless feel like I, it might not be effective, but what else can I do? Uh, you know, I feel that we have to offer. We'll say, well, if, you, if you're not doing it, well, what else is on offer? And there are, you know, very good resources available um, from sites like, you know, Pain Australia, which is a not-for-profit organisation that came out of the National Pain Strategy that gives lots of pointers about what to do and where to go. Um, and I think, uh, you know, and the um, eight an organisation called the ACI, which is part of the Ministry of Health, has a fantastic um, website, the ACI. If you Google ACI Pain Network, fabulous resources. Um, so, I, you know, so I can see why people are worried about something being put behind behind a wall, if you like, but I, I do think it, in, in general terms it's a good thing if it, it expands the options that people consider. Yeah, and uh, I'm sorry I didn't quite understand the question the first time, but I'd I just add um, that, you know, um, fortunately Australia hasn't had the problem with abuse of painkillers like in some countries like America, but, mm -hmm. you know, that problem arose there because of a gross underestimation of the risk of painkillers and... Um, you know, it was basically said that nobody would ever get addicted to them and they're not as bad as some things, but it's estimated now that depending on the kind of problem you're talking about, that um, probably 10% of people who get prescribed painkillers by a doctor can end up running into problems with abusing them or misusing them. And so it's much higher. So it's not 100% or 50%, but it's 10% and that's that's considered to be too risky and, you know, codeine is basically turned into morphine in the body by most people. So when you take a codeine tablet, you're really taking a small dose of morphine and, you know, some people will run into problems with them. But it'd be, you know, plenty of people take them without problems and obviously you've got to weigh up the risks and benefits when you start restricting mm -hmm. access to things.
so the the question is to look into a crystal ball and say what what are the pros and cons of moving to prescription only for codeine? Is there any impossible question? But you're not really the. Uh, I wouldn't consider myself an expert to talk about that. Yeah. But you know, I think uh, I think there's a it's based on a concern of what's happening in other countries mm -hmm. and not wanting it to happen here be prevented. Mm -hmm. Next seminar. Okay, so I've been following the work of uh, Laura Mosley and David Butler uh, on pain, and I wanted to find out if you're, you know, how much you know of, know of their work. In particular, what I've found really interesting is that they've indeed embraced the biopsychosocial social model of pain, and they appear to be trying to move focus away from just nociception towards indeed educating people about all the various other inputs uh, into their whole system which may uh, modulate the way in which they experience pain. Um, and perhaps moving away from just looking at you know, pharmacology as, the, as our only method of fighting pain or treating, dealing with pain. So I guess I'm partly wanting to ask you what do you think of their approach and, do you, and are you as um, positive as they are that what we need to have in our healthcare system is much more of a new approach to the treatment of pain rather than just you know, here is a prescription for opioids or whatever else. Yeah, your I thoughts. think the first thing to say is it's not it's not a new approach. A lot, you know, a really good um, pain management programs actually do this, um, uh, and, and I think you know they have a you know really nice way of doing it. But but I you know I think and actually it's it's actually quite a good discriminator of you know it's hard because lots of things badge themselves as pain management programs, but they're actually very different different beasts. And I, I think good ones all contain always contain a, a strong element. Of that approach would be would be my my assessment. And um, and I, yeah, I, I think we, you know we we know Florimer in, in his work, and I think um, that there's more uh, more emerging evidence of the, the the almost the kind of biological benefits of that kind of approach, and that a, a lot of people with chronic pain with this kind of central sensitisation have alterations in their you know, in, endogenous intrinsic kind of pain controlling mechanisms being a bit dysfunctional and it seems that doing these non-pharmacological non kind of approaches enable those things to become functional again and probably due to connections between the cortex and the, and the structures down in the brainstem can actually, you know, get the system kind of rebooted without having to take drugs. And... Um, and, and I think also, um, importantly, a team approach is essential. So you'll see that banner there, putting the mouth into health, all right? And that's, that's our single um, mission for dentistry here at the University of Sydney, but it's actually a nice example of um, what we're trying to get uh, across here. So, um, of course, the biological consequences, but the psychological and social um, impact is incredibly important. And, in fact, what you see with a number of chronic um, or persistent pain um, sufferers is that they take themselves off medication often once they've enrolled in a... Um, what we would call an evidence-based pain management um, program because they've actually come in with often lists of medication that they've trialled and they've just had an add-on approach with medication. Um, they actually see the benefit of, of using some of these other approaches. 
Professor Michael Nicholas, could you um, perhaps uh, give us some remarks about the psycholo psychological dimensions of, of pain, pain perception, its relevance in the, in the scheme of things? Um, it, <laughs> that's a difficult question yes. <laughs> because it's enormous <laughs> sure. and, and we've only got a few minutes. Uh, <laughs> um, and people know how boring I can be if I get started. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll try... But, but basically, as uh, uh, Paul said, uh, the, the definition of pain, uh, or pain by definition, is an experience, uh, and that sense that all pain is psychological. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that it's caused by psychological mechanisms, but it means that it is a psychological process that has underpinnings in the body, and the, the mind, and so on. Um, and um, it, it, it reminds us the, of the importance of getting away from just doing CT scans or MRIs and investigations to find things that don't correlate well anyway with the, that experience people call pain. And we, we really do have to listen to the patient and understand how, how they're seeing uh, this problem for them. And two people can have exactly the same injury but have quite different problems with it. Um, and, it, it. and so we treat not on the basis of the injury per se but also on the person who's got the injury and the problems it's causing them. So one has to, be, uh, uh, has to listen to, to the patient um, and tailor things accordingly. But that doesn't mean you do anything uh, uh, and, you know, it's just um, uh, anything goes. There are things which, approaches which have a lot more evidence than others and it's very important, obviously, to stick to approaches which, which have reasonable evidence. Um, but um, we have to be mindful and aware that uh, no treatment works with everyone. Uh, but it's also true that some treatment uh, will work with someone and, and we don't always know which that is. Sometimes you've got to try these things to find out. Um, uh, and, and so some people come in swearing acupuncture helps and then the next person says, well, it didn't help me at all. <laughs> um, it's, uh, uh, and, and you'll see the same with... Um, uh, someone mentioned, uh, you know, explaining pain is the answer. Well, some people do find that helpful, uh, but not everyone. Uh, a lot of people, as Fiona said, explaining pain is a part of all pain programs, and that's been around for a long time. Um, uh, but it's clearly important for people to understand their condition and their pain as much as possible. But then the question arises, well, what do you do now? Uh, and this is what GPs say, uh, particularly if they can uh, assess someone who's possibly likely to develop chronic pain and a lot of problems with it, but what do they do about that? And that's, um, that's where the system seems to fall over um, and your risk of getting on a long waiting list to, to go to treatments that are going to be of only marginal benefit. Um, and I think that's where we need to improve our education for our medical students and how to recognise uh, people at risk of developing chronic pain, but also to skill them more in how to help people manage that early phase because I think it's quite clear uh, that if we could prevent uh, uh, these problems developing, um, we, we, the outcomes would obviously be, be completely different. And I, and I think there's emerging evidence that, that we can. Um, and, and we've been doing studies here in Sydney with injured workers where we've demonstrated uh, we can halve the amount of time people have off work by identifying those at risk due to psychological factors within the first week of an injury and intervene and uh, within our workers' comp system. So it's not hopeless even in that environment, which is often thought of as hopeless. 
Um, you can do things, but uh, it does require coordination uh, and education of the providers and the workplace um, and also the insurance companies. Um, that's the social dimension or environmental dimension uh, we, we need to think about here. So it's, uh, I'm afraid the answer will not be purely psychological. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint. <laughs> if you <laughs> a bit of hypnosis or relaxation or mindfulness, uh, they're, they're fine, they're nice, they can make you feel good at the time, but really they're not an answer by themselves. Just like drugs are not an answer by themselves. Um, you'll need to do a number of things. Uh, but the earlier you uh, pick up the problems and respond, the easier they, they are. I mean, in the study that I was mentioning about the injured workers, we got them to see the high-risk cases to see a psychologist with, within a week or two of their injury, and on average they had five sessions and they were back at work. Um, but if they were referred a year down the track, they would take 30 or 40 sessions and still not be back at work. Uh, so I think that it, it is, uh, to me, very clear that we're too slow in reacting uh, to people after injuries because we take a very bio approach. Uh, we don't take a biopsychosocial approach, which you've heard mentioned. And, I, and I, it's not just about pain, it's about all, uh, you know, all conditions really, but certainly uh, uh, critical and pain. So um, I guess those are, um, there's no simple um, uh, quick fix here, but there are um, a lot of indications of the sorts of things that can be done and, and are quite uh, feasible, um, even in very difficult circumstances. Um, and and uh, that's, uh, I would commend the ACI website to you. Um, I'm one of the contributors to that. I'm the co-chair of the Pain Network for New South Wales. And uh, the health department's put a lot of funds into developing that website. It's everything on it is free, it's accessible. And I do recommend, if you want to find out more about pain, uh, where to go, that, that would be a good place to start. Thanks. I just wanted to say yes. one thing about um, um, trying to predict those patients that will end up with um, persistent pain. Um, there's some really interesting um, evidence in the dental area that... Um, before even having any sort of dental procedure, if you have catastrophic thinking or if you're preoccupied with what we call non-specific physical symptoms, so, you know, you've got the heavy feeling in the stomach, the tingling, not feeling well, get that sorted out first before you go and have any sort of dental procedure, whether it be a simple restoration, whether it be um, surgery, because they are predictors for ongoing persistent pain. Um, so I just wanted to know what the success rate of pain management programs were and what factors would increase the success rate of them or the success of them. Um, oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> tough, uh, tricky question. Um, so, you know, back in about 2010, there was the National Pain Strategy, and one of the initiatives that came out of that was um, the, the setting up of a national database to look at outcomes. So we are actually able to answer that question a bit more objectively now. And the initiative's called EPOC, Electronic Persistent Pain Outcomes Collaboration, and... Um, the University of Wollongong is where that data is warehoused and we get reports at a state level and the, so the, the data is that uh, patients who attend a, a uh, chronic pain clinic and 
where there's one of these interdisciplinary programs and all of the major public hospitals have them as well as many of the smaller hospitals uh, that they'll get 80% of people will get some improvement in one of the dimensions of their pain as a result of attending a pain clinic and you know they're, they're often uh, and, and that's that's 80% of people with you know moderate to severe pain and disability and distress so it's really the hardest cases so even in the worst cases people can improve most people can improve in some way and I you know as we've said I think the earlier the better before it gets to be so severe it would be um, one of the most important ways to improve that aside from new initiatives and like reducing waiting lists and more resources would help. So uh, we were saying, I think, earlier, between 10 and 20% of people live with chronic pain, and you were saying if people get uh, assessed and attend uh, a pain management clinic, as high as 80% of people may get... Um, get, get some improvement. Great. And 80% uh, of the people who are moderately to severely affected when they come to the chronic pain clinic, which is after having had it for usually for years and having seen many other doctors and sought other kind of treatments and other kind of uh, practitioners. So um, I think people who aren't quite so severely affected will be more likely to be able to be helped. But 80% of the worst cases get improvement. And the outcomes may not be complete removal of the intensity of the pain, but have yeah. some improvement where it's livable, manageable. Well, yeah, I think, to, I think the, the aim is to be able to function better and uh, get on with your life despite it. And I, I know one of Mike's analogies is to think of pain like diabetes or asthma and so the problems may never go away but you can get on with your life and be at work and playing sport and enjoying a social life and not having it affect it and probably similar to asthma I think one of the problems with chronic pain is people get flare-ups and knowing ways to cope with that and not have that put them out of action for extended period of time is a key part of it as well. I'd like to address a question to the professor who uh, um, talked on psychological uh, issues. I didn't catch the name. Um, Michael Nicholas. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, he started by apologising for possibly boring us, and uh, indeed that is a, a danger when trying to uh, address the whole of a vast, broad topic in, in generalities. So I'd like to ask a question to try and give him a, something more specific to get his teeth into. Um, <laughs> what, for instance, does one do for the terminally ill whose principally disabling problem is not so much the um, uh, level of pain that they are experiencing but the fear that they are living with of how much worse things can potentially get. So pain is experienced in the body but may be modulated or may be increased or exacerbated by one's attitude uh, um, and principally you're talking about fear. What, what role does fear play in perception and experience of pain and other emotions, I would imagine? Yeah, yeah um, that, that's uh, um, uh, another good question. Um, it's not just, it's not, I would say it's not peculiar just to people with, with uh, cancer, pain or terminal, uh, the terminal condition. Uh, the, uh, uh, I guess a lot of people with, with persisting pain 
have trouble accepting that they're okay and there's just something gone wrong with their nervous system and they've got to learn to sort of relax and get on with their life. Um, it is uh, inherently, uh, it paints itself as a warning signal, isn't it? It's nature's a way of telling us there's, there's something wrong um, and you, you're obviously going to attend to that. Um, and the way you respond to that will, will influence how much pain you have and how much it does interfere in your life and, and, and your, your mood state. Um, in terms of what, what would you practically do, um, well, what, if someone came to me with that problem, I'd, I'd try to work out firstly what are they doing now uh, about that, how are they responding, um, and uh, then think about, well, uh, are there, would there be alternative ways they could deal with this? Um, there's unlikely to be a one-size-fits-all approach. So um, uh, I, I, I would be very careful of people who say they have got the answer for everybody. <laughs> now, if you Google uh, breakthroughs on back pain, for example, you'll find pages and pages of breakthroughs that you know have come and gone uh, with the wind. Um, we, we don't. It, it's not that sort of thing that's going to have that sort of breakthrough. But typically in that situation, which is pretty uh, difficult, the people are often weighing up. Do they take more opiate, uh, but then they have the side effects of the cognitions and they want to be awake and they want to be alert, they want to participate in things and the drugs will calm you down but also put you to sleep. So that's not really what a lot of people want. Um, so some of the strategy would include things like... Um, Monitoring the way you're responding, the way you're thinking about it, and uh, could you could you modify the, your thought processes? Could you modify your the way way you're you're feeling, like learning uh, a calming technique, a self-calming, and it could be a yogic technique, it could be a meditation, it could be a relaxation. Um, that varies. Uh, some people have one already, and we would suggest they they might like to use that, uh, not to get rid of the pain. The pain is not due to tension, um, but rather to calm that. that that response, and then you might take a uh, work out. Well, what is it you want to be doing? Like uh, someone mentioned earlier, their goals. What um, do you want to be able to sort of just get through the day, or do you want to be able to sort of make dinner, or, or and, and try to work out. Well, how am I going to be able to do that? And you give yourself a focus, a purpose that initially needs to be fairly close, uh, not something to do maybe in the next hour, or, or maybe a bit later in the day, uh, but not months away. Um, you'd need to be looking very focused uh, at things in a very focused way, in short time frames, step by step. Um, I mean, it's like you know, flying to London. Uh, you can imagine those new planes going 17 hours. How are you going to get through 17 hours sitting in economy seats? <laughs> uh, it, it's, you know, it, it, it's be, uh, you know, it must be hell. Um, uh, so one would then say, well, how could we do that? Well, we might divide the trip up into short sections, like movie by movie or hour by hour, get up every hour, move around and walk and stretch and so on, then go back and sit down. So you'd break things down. And that's exactly the same with, with uh, uh, severe pain or chronic pain um, that's, that, that's causing uh, distress. So you need to do a number of things. So I'm not sure which man asked me the question. <laughs> that was you. Because <laughs> um, several people were looking at me. <laughs> um, but d does that answer your question? All right. No, thanks. <clears throat> thanks, Michael. Um, Paul, did you have any comment about uh, cancer survivor pain? Uh, palliative care, given that palliative care is looking at you know, psychological, physical, spiritual, emotional dimensions? Um, I, I kind of probably separate those out. I mean, um, 
pain and cancer survivors would, I, I guess there'd be two definitions of that. That, that would be pain that's caused by the cancer treatment like an operation or chemotherapy or whatever but you know um, people are living longer with cancer and more of it's getting diagnosed and generally they're older and so there I think there seems to be more people with cancer now who don't have that much pain from the cancer but they've got other kinds of pain like back pain etc and um, I think so I think in, in I think, think where the kind of uh, interface with palliative care is that they're if it's really talking about people at the end of their life and there hasn't generally been or and there continues not to be so much concern about focusing on using opioids for example because they seem to work pretty well in the short term and I guess the reality is that people aren't going to be on them long enough or live long enough to run into addiction issues but in a person with cancer who might have, where cancer is controlled but they may have years to live or people who seem to be cured of it, um, relying on opioids I think doesn't work so well and so um, you'd be wanting to get them off it and treat it like any other kind of chronic pain. Sorry, uh, just uh, if uh, my question is too uh, general, please forgive me. I'm just wondering whether people are suffering the most uh, common chronic disease like obesity, diabetes, or cardiovascular disease, do they feel pain differently? So where people have other health issues, um, their experience of pain, but also maybe that invites the question of does that complicate uh, pain management as well? If people have other chronic health issues, you might want to lean into that. Yeah, um, well, I, I mean, I would, I would say um, I, I'm not speaking with great authority, but I, again, in general, I, I would say definitely yes for two reasons. I think um, uh, that many of those conditions cause pain in themselves, and uh, so if you have another painful condition, having a painful comorbidity, the two will probably be... Um, uh, you know, multiplicative, uh, exponential kind of thing rather than just a additive. But, but I think then there's probably common processes like inflammation and so on that are driving a lot of these things that would probably um, contribute to it as well. So I, I think, you know, there, there are, that, that's a special area of pain and comorbidities and often psychological comorbidities are looked at as well, but, um, you know, again, like sampling from the cancer literature and, and experience um, that these days, if, if you do an audit of pain in people having chemotherapy, about half of them will complain of pain that's got nothing to do with the cancer. And if they're older, it's often that they've got no pain from the cancer, but they've got arthritis. In younger patients who've got cancer, often they've got comorbidities like obesity, which has led to them to get cancer. And so they'll have pain related to their comorbidities as well as to the disease. So this is really increasingly being recognised in that area. I'll just add to that that you know, there are now lots of studies just look, looking at across populations to say what are the common patternings of different chronic conditions together. And you know, there's probably about 20 studies now in different countries and they tend to show three clusters occur commonly across populations. So there's musculoskeletal cluster where pain is the most 
prominent problem. What we call cardiometabolic problems, which would include heart disease, you know, diabetes and obesity, and a, and a mental health cluster. And this has been seen quite widely. And I think the importance of that for people who work in the pain field is that, you know, one of my, my things, I'm, you know, my, my hobby horses is, uh, you know, you can't just think about the pain. And this is particularly true in older people. You know, most older people aged over 65 in Australia have three or more chronic conditions. So when we are thinking about the treatment of pain, we have to think about it in the context that they are managing other things. And um, we've been involved in a study at North Shore where we introduced, we tried to design, a, if you like, a lighter touch multidisciplinary pain program for older people with the idea that this might be something we could take out of a specialised centre into community settings to deal with the, you know, the broader problem of, of older people in the community with pain. And we thought we wouldn't focus so much on medication reduction for a number of reasons, but we really got into trouble with the older people. They said, we're on so many medications, so many things, we'd love to get off our pain medications. So I think, you know, from a, a, a pain point of view, it's very important for us to realise that these things will travel together. And um, interesting with the jaw muscle and jaw joint disorders, so temporomandibular disorders, there's um, thinking now that there's a subset of those which is actually part of a generalised persistent pain disorder because there's very high prevalence of some of these other chronic conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, um, which um, don't have diagnostic criteria in the, in the mouth and face region. And so one of the things I impress upon all health practitioners is that, um, and particularly dental practitioners, is um, and to patients, that um, it's important that um, when you see, for example, a dental practitioner that you um, be assessed um, in the orofacial region, but make sure that you provide a comprehensive um, medical history as well. Um, look, I appreciate some comment from the panellists about um, what the ongoing educational processes are occurring at the medical level. Um, I've become a little bit despondent about this whole process being a pain management physio for quite some time because I believe that the majority of people are not those people who go to pain clinics but the average everyday population who aren't really hearing about this sort of thing. So I'm hopeful that there's a positive message and I'd like to hear what might be happening at the undergraduate level or the, or the medical level of uh, training of the practitioners that might be hearing about this. Well, I, I think you've raised a, a really important issue and, you know, I, I think sadly we could say in many major universities, not just in Australia but uh, around the world, um, you know, if you're doing veterinary science, you'll probably get more hours of pain <laughs> treatment, of pain management um, education than you will in a medical program. Um, and, and the, the thing is, actually, there are, we, we, you know, the International Association for the Study of Pain has developed a, a full curriculum that could be, you know, delivered to, to different um, under, undergraduate um, health degrees uh, that would really skill people up uh, for being good at understanding pain as practitioners and also, you know, how to assess it. Um, but it's still, you know, it, we're still struggling to, to get that um, in, into the curriculum. Now, it, I, one of my hats is I, I run one of the, the metropolitan clinical schools within the Sydney Medical Program and we're in the process of completely 
redesigning the medical curriculum and I'm very pleased to say for the first time we're actually getting a dedicated spot <laughs> about pain and pain management. And it, it's there but it's not, it's not been um, ever consolidated and so that we think is a, is a step forward. Um, but but it, you know, it, 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 as much as we talk about educating um, patients and the community, by golly, we need to be training the next generation of um, healthcare practitioners as well. You might, might yeah. yeah. And I, I guess um, being dean, I have the luxury of perhaps um, directing the curriculum a little bit. So 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 pain pain for the dental practitioner is certainly an important area, particularly acute pain. And dental practitioners tend to manage acute pain very well. Chronic pain, not so much. Um, but what I've seen just from a clinical perspective is a very much change over the past 10, 15 years in the type of patient. So um, prior to that, I would see patients that would have had um, significant irreversible procedures performed. I don't see that as frequently now. Now, um, hopefully that's um, partly our education. Um, I'm not saying that we don't still have a way to go. Perhaps it's through professional development. Perhaps it's through chronic pain occurs in one in five people. So everyone knows someone with chronic pain. Um, but, but I certainly have seen a change, at least from my perspective, in, in the, in the patient, um, patient mix, which, um, which I think is heading in the right direction. I'd also add that, um, you know, that, that's going to be great for the future, but there's still a problem now. And, um, I, I know seeing people in patients in clinic that they'll often say that they go to a, a group practice and their usual GPs away and they get told something completely different by the partner and they won't write a prescription for them or whatever. So dealing with that and um, you know we run a big education program out of the Pain Management Research Institute which is part of the university and based over at North Shore and Michael was just telling me on the way over here that We've uh, signed an agreement with the Royal Australasia College of GPs for them to get continuing education points for our program. So hopefully, you know, and that, that's more challenging than it sounds to get that kind of status. So um, hopefully we can have some direct impact on the continuing education of GPs to bring them up to the same speed as the new ones coming through. Uh, I was going to ask a different question, but just as a follow-up to that, um, what are three takeaway messages that you can give to people considering 80% of us will get low back pain? We know that if we go to a GP based on the evidence, maybe 20% of them will adhere to good quality evidence-based management of it. So as you've been uh, speaking about now, there is a gap. So what are some things, some practical things that we should be doing or looking to do since we're all going to experience pain? Give one each. Yeah. Keep, keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as in one campaign, don't take back pain lying down. You know, so I think um, uh, you know, most, most back pain is self-limiting. Um, uh, staying a active uh, is an important um, component of it. Um, and, and if it isn't self-limiting, um, then go, go and get it reviewed. That's my three. So I'm, I'm, I'm not qualified to talk about managing back pain, but I think um, professional development for the health professional. I think um, um, 
um, any health professionals here, look up the um, University of Sydney Pain Management Research Centre site. There's some fantastic professional development. Go and do that and that will at least make you stop and think um, on how to manage some of these difficult uh, chronic pain conditions. And I, I would add um, that, you know, um, it's in, in, important to, you know, like embrace that biopsychosocial model or some people are even saying it should be a socio-psycho-bio model and that when you've got chronic pain and it really um, continuing to pursue a cause is fruitless and just delaying things like we said earlier and then also that um, drugs are unlikely to be a magic answer and that it needs a more comprehensive approach would be and uh, I, I think they'd be two that I'd add anyway. Hi, um, this is a question for the panel and also for um, Professor Michael Nicholas who touched briefly on workers' comp just now. Um, are there any evidence-based strategies to assist injured workers in the workers' comp system? So um, I work as an OT in workers' comp and I've identified lots of sort of biopsychosocial factors for injured workers to actually contribute to perhaps um, chronic pain down the track. So an injured worker in workers' comp, they're dealing with their injury, the industrial issues at their workplace, um, dealing with insurers. Um, I've got workers who have had their compensable injury addressed by the insurer, but they're still fighting to have their non-comp injuries validated as well and are recognised and then treated. So there are just lots of factors which I'm not like a pain specialist, but <laughs> which I feel could be contributing like outside of, you know, their compensable injury could be caused causing problems for them down the track. Yeah. So is there any evidence around this that I could look into to help with that? Thank yeah. you. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's a very you know, interesting area and I think actually a lot of our, our way of thinking about system level approaches to, to managing um, you know, groups of people with pain and also to, to what we might call yellow flags or you know, things, signals that might make us think these people need, we need to do two more earlier too. A lot of that actually comes from research in that, in that workers' comp space. Um, and, you know, and there's, there's doubtless evidence that, that the way the system has traditionally worked has almost, um, you know, worked against, um, people getting good outcomes. Uh, but I think you know that that has changed, and, and you know, maybe I, I know Michael can talk about you know particular intervention um, in relation to that. But just while he's warming up there, um, there's also been you know a really interesting um, public health campaign in Victoria that was done by their work cover, which actually involved a public edu you know social media campaign about back pain at work uh, that that actually led to really sustained changes in. in in claims for back pain for, for some time. It's been very hard to replicate that, but there's no doubt it really shifted um, things at a popular... It's a very rare example, if you like, of a population-level intervention that really did have some tangible outcomes. Yeah, yeah that, that is actually a very good question. Um, and one of the phenomena that's been observed both in this state and on WA, I was just there last week at their workers' compensation meeting, and 
they were saying that their uh, claims had reduced by about 30% in the last 10 years, uh, but they also noted that their costs were basically the same. And when the study I was referring to earlier, I started in Sydney in 2013, um, the health department who with whom I did the study reported their claims were coming down, a number of claims, so who were making a claim was dropping, but those who were making claims were staying off work longer. And um, that's what's happened in W, still happening in WA, and they actually didn't think they had a problem, but they're talking about soft tissue injuries, which are supposed to be self-limiting. So I, I told them they do have a problem. <laughs> Part of uh, fixing a problem is to realise you've got it. <laughs> uh, so uh, I don't know if my words will make any difference to them, but... Um, one of the things we did in our study, which I think speaks to the point that was raised, is that the instructions we gave the psychologists, if they were identified as a high-risk case, was not to treat the injury per se, but to deal with the obstacles for this worker going back to work. And, I, and the insurance company went along with it, and I said nothing about treating the injury uh, or, or what was caused directly by the injury, but deal with the obstacles for returning to work. And I've written a manual on this for iCare, which now funds all of our workers' comp system in New South Wales. Um, that's the old work cover, basically. It's now got a more cycle. It's got a big... Uh, it's a sort of shady organisation. <laughs> but it's actually... A, uh, it's a government sort of instrumentality. It deals with the finances of our system. Um, but they're the guys who pull the strings now. Um, and I've written a manual for them to tell them to stop focusing on the injury... <laughs> that rather deal with the obstacles for this worker and going back to work. So this, I think, would be what the, the answer to your question, uh, where, where uh, the injury might be to your left hand, but if you, as a result of your left hand, you use your right one more, and that starts to develop a problem. But the classic thing is the insurer will only cover treatment for your left hand <laughs> and not deal with the right. And that's just clearly crazy in a clinical context. Uh, and I believe, um, well, I've, I've shown that it, you can get better return to work uh, outcomes if you do deal with the whole person. Um, but I'm afraid this is a marathon, <laughs> not a sprint, and it will be a while before these changes occur. But I think it, uh, we've, we're seeing this emerge uh, um, in the literature around the world. Uh, but I, I think, uh, so one, can, one just needs to keep bashing away, I'm afraid. So we have time for one more question, and then we're going to move to um, to a wrap. Uh, and a thank you. So over here. Okay. So I, I wanted to return to a question, a point you made earlier <clears throat> about the measurement of pain and some of the problems that come up. You know. So if I remember correctly, you said something like that. Well, look, there are all these. Uh, experiential elements that can be measured. Now, what I find interesting about this, right, is that uh, the area that I work in, which is law and neuroscience, there's been a very strong uh, push towards being able to assess pain. Why? Well, one reason is that people often sue for pain and suffering, and you don't really want, well, in those jurisdictions where you want to measure pain, it'd be great to be able to, you know, get some sort of a more than just a subjective measure. Now, if, even if pain is just experiential, presumably experiences happen here, and that's granted all the biopsychosocial factors. So why is it that in principle you said that you can't measure it? Is it that in principle you can't measure it, or is it because of the multiple realizability you can't measure it, or because there are various uh, factors involved in the experience of pain and we don't yet know what they are? So I'm trying to figure out, is it an in principle question that we can't do it, or a current level of science and technology and that we're not yet... 
correctly lining up the whole experience of pain with whatever the neural correlates might be. So what was your answer there, I wonder? Yeah. Objectively I mean, measuring pain. Yeah, yeah no, it's a very, it, it's a, this is, I think, some of the issues. I mean, um, we, we'd like to be able to measure pain for lots of reasons and like lawyers would like to be able to measure pain and, you know, work, workers comp, uh, eye care would like to be able to objectively measure it. And, um, there've been a lot of advances in the technology like with fMRI and nerve conduction studies. So we can, we can show what parts of the brain light up when you're in pain. But, uh, you know, and, and we're realising all the time more and more how complicated the system is, but it still, I think, moves into the uh, language department, I guess, and, you know, into philosophy and so on, that still this thing about uh, object versus subject and this kind of thing, and about, you know, I think it's like getting into deep things about humanity and so on, and about why, uh, you know, about human experience, etc., and do we really want to be able to measure it even? And uh, I'm, I'm getting out of my depth here, but, you know, I think that the technology will improve and, uh, you know, um, people have been, you know, you can, when, when people are depressed or emotional, you can measure happiness and all this kind of thing, but, you know, because a part of your brain lights up when you're happy, does that mean that, you know, you're really measuring being happy? And I think, you know, so really, I think it comes back to, maybe a limitation of the English language of uh, the word pain and what it, what, what it really means. But the, the IASP, which is international, that's International Association, um, they, they're constantly looking at the definition and tweaking it, but the subjectivity of the experience is a fundamental part of it. And to, I think that's uh, probably something that isn't necessarily in the realms of science. And I think, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but, you know, I think the current understanding is that um, the pain processing system is a very distributed system and it has a lot of shared circuitry with other things like um, motivation and reward circuits and also with, with mood and, 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 and thinking circuits. And so, so it's really not that there is, you know, there is the pain centre in the brain. It's, it's very distributed and, and possibly that reflects, you know, the evolutionary importance of pain that it's, you know, it goes to centres that perceive threat. Um, um, you know, it, it, and we all know about, for example, people who break their legs playing football but keep going for a while because they're motivated to keep going and it overrides the, the importance of the pain. So these things are all intertwined and, and that's one of the issues is that, um, you, you know, there are things that are, might be somewhat distinctive of, of, of representation of pain but they're not unique uh, and, that, and that is one of the challenges, I think. And I think it will never replace you know, the, the, you know, that sort of subjective um, experience. But, but certainly, you know, in, in my time in the field, that there, there's been, all these things have been converging, you know, so, so it was clear that, you know, psychological and movement treatments worked, but not really how. And with the, the kind of growing understanding from neuroscience, you can see really these have, under, and, and things like stigma. You know, there was a really great topical review published last year looking at, you know, there is a neurobiology of stigma. You know, which is you know, which is what, why we know it's important to address this for, for communities with pain, because actually it it has a neural expression in, in people's brains. And and I um um I hear you, 
As a dentist, I have a tolerance of 10 microns. And so um, getting into the pain area 20-odd years ago um, was incredibly frustrating because I was looking for the, um, um, for the measure, you know, and we start with the visual analogue scale and, of course, that's just one component. Then I love the mnemonics to actually describe the pain. What I've learned now is it's the pain narrative and it's the, the hour that I see a patient... Um, 58 minutes is actually the pain narrative, two minutes is the exam. <laughs> yeah, that's not long enough. Mm. We're going to move to a wrap. Um, uh, so uh, I wanted to say, if you have uh, uh, enjoyed tonight, you might also be interested. You've seen that we've got two more uh, health forum topics coming up later in the year. On the 2nd of August, we're looking at addiction and whether it is the new normal. So we're going to look broadly at addiction, not just about drug addiction and so forth, but also about, you know, these devices that people keep pulling out of their pockets and can't live without, um, and all other manner of social uh, addictions. On the 13th of September, we're going to also look at health hacks about how to keep the mind and the body sharp. If you'd like to receive information about these and other upcoming Sydney Ideas events, please visit the website um, that is uh, in front of you. Um, now, if you would join me by putting your hands together, I'd like to thank our expert panel... Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.